0: Building Inclusive is a podcast to empower people to create more inclusive organizations, spaces, and communities.
1: Maybe my experiences that I've had barriers and I've had to break those barriers: being Hispanic, being a woman, being minority, being brown, you know, dark, black. Consider that um, I was was different.
2: I'm Dan Kirby, an African-American architect, urban planner, and a champion for empowerment and inclusivity. I'm Harry Lim, a photographer capturing amazing places
0: for people. As a Hispanic, an immigrant, and a father of two girls, I'm personally invested in issues of equity and justice.
3: I am Jennifer Morales, cisgender Afro-Latina, a surety bond consultant, and shattering the norms of the construction industry.
2: Welcome, everyone. So here we are at our first episode of Building Inclusive. I think in a time like this, um, when we're seeing both the backlash and decline of DEI programs, why would we choose to launch a podcast on equity, diversity, and inclusion? I think it's important we talk about that.
0: Well, Dan, as you said, I think because there is a backlash, it's more important now now than ever to to keep, keep talking about this so it stays in the forefront.
3: And not just that, but as we have been receiving, you know, all sorts of perspectives on what diversity, equity, and inclusion is or means to each one of us because of this sudden backlash, we want to be able to ensure that we don't regress in our progress.
2: You know, we're all living in this context of history, right? And it's important that we have these discussions and that they be placed in the proper context. It's not enough to identify a thing or an ism or a concern, right? But to understand why those things exist. Here in Florida, we're seeing different public policy come about. We're seeing different steps taken, you know, everybody has their um, own source of how they view things that are right. Um, They're all looking, everybody has their own perspective on these issues. From my perspective, what I think we're doing is we want to make this podcast be an accessible place for people to come and understand how these issues are placed in in context. We also have to very much deal in the truth, and in history. Um, not, I don't want us to make anyone feel bad or feel guilty. That's not the reason why here. But we can't ignore that there are ongoing struggles for people. Uh, there are historical struggles and they are ongoing ones. And we need to confront those things. Valuing of um, nostalgia over history is not going to get us where we need to be. We need to have real discussions about real issues, and it requires us to deal in the truth.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that's right. I think um, I think we live in a time where people think that history has no impact on present day, and history is unvarnished. Like there, you know, there there is no no right or wrong. There is, as you said, just just the truth. And so when you look at the truth and you can start to see how we're impacted today by things that happened decades ago, centuries ago. Then yeah, I think we I think we can have We Frank have this Hunt.
2: long arc of history as they say that bends toward justice and it may not seem like that lately. What what have you guys been experiencing along those lines?
3: I have it through the lens of my uh, daughter, because in growing up and getting ready to go to college, she's starting to see, you know, where is it that I want to complete my education? Is it going to still be here in Florida? Is it going to be somewhere else? And it's, it's more so because of what the trajectory has been here for the past few years, um, where we are, you know, starting to remove certain aspects of. of of protection for um, a lot of women. So for her, she's she's thinking: Should I even stay at home to study?
0: Well, my my, my kids are are a little younger. My oldest is still in elementary school, and I, I'm I'm kind of hopeful because I, I've seen her, for example, the the live action uh, version of, of the uh, Little Mermaid. You know where the the main character is is now a a black mermaid, right? And adults raised a fuss about that, right? Like, oh, that's not right, that's not original. And I asked my daughter how she felt about it and to her, it was nothing. She, she loves the movie, she loves the story. She bought a book based on it. She read through it in like a day and she's watched it over and over again. To her, it doesn't mean anything that Ariel is now black. It, it, it doesn't compute in her head. Um, she read a book where a girl has a crush on, on another girl and to her, it was okay. Um, she read a book about a, a little black girl who's who's um, on the school swim team, but she doesn't know how to swim. And the book kind of goes into the history of why black people weren't taught to swim because they were kept from, from, from public um, uh, pools. And again, to her, it's not a thing. It's not controversial. And so the fact that it's not a controversy to a child gives me hope that when she grows up as a teen, as a young adult, that it'll be okay to talk about it. You know, we won't have book bans. We won't be talking about why is this character Black when she was white. To her, it's not a thing.
3: That's exactly why. Because we didn't have book bans, which would have affected her. And now it's starting to, you know, pick up and roll into it. So we, being parents of your, you know, your daughter or uh, of my daughter and your daughter, we've had certain privileges which we've cascaded down to our children, Whereas they're going to be seeing things differently if the trajectory continues.
2: In this episode, we explore identity, really how people identify themselves and why it matters. We do this through a series of interviews and conversations with people both inside and outside of the AEC industry. I found their stories to be compelling, their perspectives to be diverse, and their experiences to be illuminating. I'm here with Craig Akar. AIA. And Craig is the founder of Black Architects in the Making. He's also a managing principal with MC Harry and Associates. Craig, a question I have for you is, how has your identity impacted your career in architecture? Dan, first of all, thank you very much for
4: taking the time out. Um, My identity. You know, recently I was asked, Craig, why do you consider yourself black while you're not black? This is a foreigner. Somebody from Someone Russia, told
2: you you're not black. From Russia. Okay. Because
4: she's not exposed to this idea of separate races and all that kind of stuff as we have experienced here in the United States. And this idea of race and segregation and all this kind of fight and struggle that we have in the United States is really foreign to a lot of other cultures. Race in
2: itself yeah. is more of a created construct. That's right. You know, it, it will realize, let's, let's say it that way. It is a created construct. Yeah. Um. But it's one that it's carried a lot of currency, certainly, in the United States. Right. But we also, I think a lot of people should realize they get the choice on how they identify, identify. themselves. So that's why when, when I ask you this question, yeah. I'm not putting an identity on you. So I'm asking you how you identify and how is it impacted. So that's, I'm, that's I'm, a great. I'm very glad you yeah.
4: asked that question. And I brought up this friend of mine from Russia. Because when she asked me this question, uh, it is something that I've, I've thought about. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, I'm from Jamaica, I identify as black American or black Caribbean, but I proudly identify as black. When I think about the struggles that generations before us have gone through, and the fight that continues even today in the United States, uh, I think about the fact that you and i are able to be here among our peers and be recognized and be appreciated for who we are as a people uh, i can't help but to be proud of the fact that because of their struggles mm-hmm. because of their sacrifices people you know were beaten people have gone to jail been firehosed and bitten by dogs people have lost their lives so that you and I can have the opportunity to be who we are today and to be proud to be who we are. So I proudly identify as descendants of and people who are benefiting from these stalwarts and these heroes that have gone before. So I am very proud to call myself Black American and I want to be recognized and identify as these heroes that
2: have gone before, so, so me. this is very similar to my own experience. Uh, I will tell you like for me, it's been this, and I could identify as an African American as a ethnic identity, mm-hmm. but also as a shared set of experience, right so you mentioned we you know we we it's the what people say we stand on the shoulders of giants, mm-hmm. these people are heroes, and what the ancestors have left to us and what they what we've inherited from them is a unique experience. People of the African diaspora mm-hmm. coming to the Caribbean, coming stateside, and what we've gone through and what we've endured and what we've built. And that is something that makes me yeah. very proud and that, that buoys me. So I share that with you. And,
4: and yeah. we have this responsibility to know that we are where we are to ensure that never again will we um, be um, relegated to second-class citizens in our country. I might not have been born in this country, but I am here now, and I'm contributing to this country more than I am contributing to my native Jamaican um, island. I am proud of that. And wherever I go, wherever I am, it is my responsibility to ensure that we are advancing the welfare of everybody, not just Black people, of course, but everybody. Our advancement, our... Um, the ability to ensure that we don't regress is on our shoulders right now. My children should never ever have to go through what my grandparents and your grandparents right. have gone through. Right. It is our responsibility that we never make
2: them feel or have to endure that. So your identity is clearly giving you a sense of responsibility. Yes. I mean, you've done things clearly in, I dare say, your, your activism, um, around creating BAM and wanting to influence this next generation of children. Mm -hmm. And you've done that from a number of perspectives. I think architect, as you've identified yourself, you know, black American, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What about your experience over your career, over the arc of the career, going through architecture school, getting to the point where you're leading a firm? Mm -hmm. Has, Has that identity shaped those things? Has it changed those experiences?
4: Well, so I did my education in Jamaica, the Caribbean School of Architecture at the University of Technology. I did my Masters of Architecture program there. When I came to the United States, really, I came here um, from a sister firm in Jamaica that had a firm here in Miami. And my idea was to just collaborate with one project. Okay. That one project evolved into 72 other projects. And as a result, I was asked to, you know, become a resident and then a citizen here. To carry those projects. So you were through.
2: already, you were an architect already.
4: Yeah, I was registered already in Jamaica before I came here. And then, you know, went through the, um, the, you know, ESA program through NCARB and, and the whole, um, you know,
2: AXP. And For people ARE, that don't know, that is the, that thing. is a, it goes what? to your experience. Correct. Yeah. Correct.
4: And, and so when I came here, I really didn't think about uh, being black, right?
2: You're already right. doing the work. You were, uh, right. you were already an architect, mm-hmm. and Correct. you were already doing the work. Correct.
4: But, 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 but when I started attending um, AIA events and so forth, I started realizing, wow, there is actually an issue here, and uh, so I started to do more exploration as to why is it I'm not seeing more people like myself here um at these uh, events and so forth. And all of that led to the eye-opening experience that, well, there are many reasons why there are not a lot of black architects in the United States. So, now that we've seen a problem, we've talked about it, now what do we do about it, you know? It can't just be all about talk. It has to be, what action can I do to make the difference that I'd like to see?
2: And that's how BAM came about. That's, that's you know? really wonderful. And And clearly having an impact. So, I want to the the. I do want to talk to you about you are the 2023 recipient now of the AIA Florida Honor Award for Social Advancement of the Profession and I think that's something to celebrate and to be proud of. You 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 and I we're a we're a um uh right now we are the, the, right we're the two recipients <laughs> of that award and I and let me tell you of all the awards I got through AIA that one I'm very proud of because that yeah. means that we are Attempting to have that positive mark on not just what we're doing, but how the whole profession looks to us. What does receiving this award mean to you?
4: Wow! so it it is definitely a a big deal and following in your footsteps is also uh, an honor. You know, one of my idols, if you will, is Bob Marley. Everybody knows he's the legend, a very reggae star. I remember an interview when I was probably seven years old. When he said on national TV, if my life was just about me, then I don't want it. Of course, he said it in the Jamaican dialect. And that stuck with me from that time. And, you know, being a man of the church and so forth, uh, I remember the life of Christ as well. And Christ really is about that too. It's about service. It is about giving back. It's about making a difference. It's about creating something that is bigger than you are. And that you really just a little sand, uh, a speck of sand on the beach, you know, but you have to make this impact so that when you are gone, you have left something behind that will benefit other people. So, so, so this particular award recognizes that. And uh, it's a big honor uh, to be recognized by your peers for advancing Uh, the profession.
2: Again, congratulations to you and your well-deserved being a recipient of this award for all the actions you continue to take To that you took in starting and now growing BAM and and gathering support and gathering volunteers and funding. And that is all um, absolutely wonderful. And then I love how you've closed in saying, Our shared faith is about believing in something bigger than you, but an understanding that your impact on the world is in that servant leadership to do something to help people other than you. Correct. So it was a wonderful, wonderful statement and a great way to uh, close it out. Craig, thank you so much for taking the time to- Hey, thank you very much, Dan. It's a pleasure, man. I'm speaking with Itzel Lozada, A-I-A. Itzel, tell us about your work and what you do.
1: Yes, I'm a healthcare architect. I was just telling someone else why I got into healthcare, and it actually was an accident many years ago. So I wanted to carve one path, and life carved me another.
2: It was an accident to get into the profession. Did you see something clearly about the profession that attracted you or was transformative?
1: Yes. So so during that the just to backtrack with the accident um I was working I had done all kinds of architecture I started with residential I did maritime I did um aviation I did banking I did a little bit of everything um multi um multi uh, mixed use multi residential high, low high rises in Miami and my accident because of it I was transferred to the healthcare group And that's where it all began. And that healthcare group only did equipment change out. It did just the type of work that, that I'm not doing right now. Right now I'm doing really big, bigger healthcare work, but the vulnerability of going into a project and seeing patients and, and what your work did to inspire, I mean, to heal them really inspired me to, to continue to chase that. So when I came to Orlando in 2008, there was no work. For me, at the time, so I had to teach and everything, and I found other jobs. I did everything to land into healthcare again, and found that that is my passion. For me, every project that I do in healthcare, I feel that that it's not only architecture that that I'm that I'm providing a change, and it's become it's just become it's become my my personal mission.
2: That's really great to have that, and have had something happen in your life where you were led to that personal mission and now you've made that you made that your professional work and by all accounts doing very well at that my next question for you has to do with people have a lot of ways of looking at themselves or things that they relate to and want to talk to you about your identity and how your identity has shaped your journey in architecture what 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 is that maybe start what your identity means to you and what has it meant to that journey
1: and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote my husband in this because he says to me, "Do you have to pr- project manage at the house too?" <laughs> <laughs> Everything that I do, he says, "I feel like you're always project manage managing." Um, I'm gonna say that maybe in in learning and when you first start this career, you you learn how to design, and you your mind is free, and you, so you are able to be more creative in how you design. So that's how I first started this career. It was about this creativity, about all you can do. But the more you learn about the codes, the more you learn about budgets, the more you learn about so many things, it really starts to trump a little bit of that creativity where you not want to make it a reality. So you start to move more um, away from maybe uh, coming up with designs that are probably not buildable like you did in your younger years, and then now you've become Uh, one of trying to get things done.
2: Do you, do you identify with being practical? Is that an identity of yours?
1: Um, no, I'm not necessarily fully practical, but, but I am the kind of person that, that wants to get it done. So I might be a bit of a, of a workaholic in a way, um, in trying to achieve things, but it's because of the fact that I know that architecture has so many facets, uh, has so many parts of it. And I've become that person that is. Trying to get all the entities to, I guess, get all the entities to to participate and get it done, that, that's sort of become my focus. You know, it's it's no longer about just one part of it, but trying to get everybody to do their part the way a leader needs to, you know, and, and kind of drawing that collaboration. That's it, just a big part of me now.
2: If we had just met for the first time and you had to describe it's El Lozada, how would you describe yourself?
1: I would say that I am, I'm pretty focused um i'm hard working and one of the things that i do like is because i'm hard working i do like challenges i am a person that i'm not fearful of taking a hard route so i'm not always one that that looks for an easy route so if people say you know they they move away from doing it i'm going to probably move to do it let's we're going to find a way of doing this M- maybe my experiences that i've had barriers and I've had to break those barriers being Hispanic, being a woman, being a uh, minority, being brown, you know, dark, black, considered that. Um, I was was different. So I had to prove. So I think I always had these sort of sometimes barriers put in front of me. They, they weren't made easy. I can see those. So I was going to work really hard to do that. So it made me be hardworking. My husband never understood why I was so driven. Was so hard working, and I said I had to be since I was young until today, I still am. He says, "Where do you draw the energy? Because I can work for hours and still come home and do other things and sleep five hours, and I'm still doing the same thing the next morning." And he says, "Where does the energy ever come from?" I, I said, "Part of it is probably genetic, but part of it is, is that breaking those barriers, and I think it's made me that way to today." So,
2: so breaking the barriers, would you say that your identity has provided you with some level of inspiration?
1: i think so yes yes most definitely is
2: is that a good thing
1: um it is because because had it had it not then i would have not given me the opportunities for the things that came to me right it was sort of an escalation of those things so those barriers allowed me to say oh i conquered this one what's the next challenge and Do i think you think
2: you're a better architect because of your identity
1: that's that's a good question no, it's it's, it's it's
2: it's 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 a deep one, right? If it's shaped the core of what you are and how you practice as a professional, right? Then maybe.
1: I think so. I definitely think so. I I should I should have answered that with a definite yes because of the fact that um I I can educate my clients. I don't have to be like my clients and if if you know, even though you have these types of clients that are, you know, in, in a different realm, some are very educational, some can be very rudeless. It it doesn't change who you want to be or what you want to do or what your mission is, right? You still stay humble. You still, you, you, you're driven to, to get your task and your, and move forward what you want to move forward and get this project done. Because I think it's always for me beyond them. If I'm going to build a hospital, it's going to outdo whoever is in the team and myself. I'm doing it for a bigger cause because many years later, it's going to save these many lives. Let's so it's, it. it's always like beyond us. It's almost like the organization. I'm working in the an organization and every time I do something for a committee, I always say I'm just doing it and paying it forward for the next person. So you're building a foundation. So I do think part of who I am, I am shaping some of what, what I input or what I work on because it's who I am. I want to leave a little bit of me, um, with, with everything I contribute. And I'm not going to sort of falter away from that, you know?
2: So you're building a legacy that is likely to have an impact on how other people are identified in the future.
1: I think so. I try.
2: This is this is, this is um, very much enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much, itself, for um, sharing your thoughts with us.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
2: I am here with Jennifer Jenkins. Walker. Walker. And Jennifer, just to establish, tell me about who you are and...
5: So I'm here with my husband, who has been an AIA member for over 40 years. And uh, he, his undergrad was Georgia Tech in architecture, um, master's from there, but then also master's at in Paris at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts, which oh, is... Right. a no slacker, good, right? yeah. Right? And uh, I also am native Atlanta, undergrad in Atlanta at Agnes Scott, but also my master's in diplomacy in Paris at... <laughs> science politique l'institut d'Égypte Politique. Yeah. so you are bilingual multi yes multilingual yes of okay. course i just say i only speak southern english <laughs> 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 but no i mean communication is everything so you you studied international relations yes okay yes which is um in and of itself multidisciplinary interdisciplinary so it's it's history it's political science and also it's everything that's so sociology culture, language. It's a really comprehensive. And actually, my graduating class is undergrad. 94 was one of the first, the first years that that existed as a discipline for people to study. And then
2: you have a career spanning multiple decades in international diplomacy, Diplomacy. right,
5: right. And public private. So
2: So you bring probably what is an amazing perspective on people in their identities and how they communicate and how they relate to other people because of that.
5: And I'll, let me back up and ask you this question: How do you identify? The cliche would be citizen of the world, okay, but or global nomad, but it's it's very literal and very real, and it really started growing up in Atlanta and the multicultural diversity of our community and and, and our perspective in the world, um, long before I ever stepped foot on any other continent or in any other country. But here I am, almost 50 years old and having served five continents, 37 countries. So
2: do you see a defining part of your identity as being local and global? So it's global, it's but both. definitely marked by being
5: From Atlanta. Yes, because um, prior to my birth, um, Atlanta had made people of all cultures in Atlanta had made a very specific choice to be the city too busy to hate to be the city where we were developing the beloved community and the world house, as Dr. Kink, I I will say, introduced much of the American people to. But he himself, his entire spirituality and philosophy was developed from multiple cultures, including India, South Africa, the African continent, et cetera. So, So for those of us, like my husband and I, who grew up with this diversity and this worldview, our identity, local and global, were synonymous. That, you know, fascinating to me
2: in terms of the identity of Atlanta as a global citizen and then feeling to be an ambassador of those ideas as you were involved in a career in diplomacy. So knowing that, I think it's probably fair to say when, you, when you're doing these international travels, people might at not first think of you as somebody that identifies as being from Atlanta and what that means. How's that impacted when you meet people abroad?
5: Well, obviously, the most important thing is is to be able to empathize. What is our common humanity? What do we as humans, no matter what language we speak, no matter what color we are, no matter what, what name we give God, what faith we have, et cetera, for us to empathize with each other as humans, that's the first part. And that is something that transcends whether you speak each other's languages or not. And then you learn to speak each other's languages. So empathy mm-hmm.
2: is the primary way you've overcome what if, what might be barriers or perceived barriers.
5: Yes. Instead of being intimidated and fearful of the differences and feel like, oh, because I don't speak this language, because I am not from this culture, from this background, et cetera, then, oh, I'm a minority. Instead of being afraid of that, it's Okay. How do I overcome? How do, you know, as we say, we shall overcome. How do you move beyond the obstacles, the practical obstacles and then, and adapt the okay. adaptability and the independence that you and I were talking about? That's particular to our generation.
2: Do you think that perspective is shared by more people or by less people?
5: Um, it depends on the generation. I feel like the, these young people, because we've just come out of this, this multi-generational workshop, I think that well, we know. I mean, it's over seventy percent now of, of of the folks who are eighteen or younger are multiracial, are, are multilingual, et cetera, in this country alone, and that trend exists globally. So, at this moment, that's not the majority yet of all of us who are still living. So, it depends on you know who who, who which group I'm interacting with as to whether that's a majority or a minority. I think that there is a larger percentage of people who do identify above and beyond just their individual selves than the polls or statistics kind of indicate. I think there's a very loud, I'm going to say, minority in this country. And it's not just this country because the trend of polarization is happening globally. And I think that the people who are so afraid of change and so afraid of, quote unquote, the other, whatever the other, other is, is yes. however that's identified as the other, that that minority of people, they're so vocal and there's a level of sadly physical and even spiritual violence that goes hand in hand with, with, with that kind of mentality. But that's not the majority of people. There is a so-called silent majority, but I see with the, the younger generations, they're not just silent. They're not just sitting back and and allowing for uh, the tyranny of the minority, if you will.
2: Well, there's clearly a hopefulness in what you are saying in your perspective in describing the you know the majority of people in a positive way.
5: So, are you are you, am I getting that right? Are you hopeful? Yes, and well, that's very much a a, um, a question of faith. But it's also I I need to put this in perspective. So, my father is a disabled Vietnam veteran. And so I was blessed to be raised by the quote unquote village. It takes a village of of both grand, both sets of grandparents who were of the greatest generation, World War II generation, who were so self-sacrificing and so about community and service above self. And, but simply to say that there was absolutely nothing easy, if you will, about the circumstances in which I was born. And then in terms of the profession, that you, you could say I chose, but mm-hmm. I also feel was a calling. That's kind of my destiny. Um, there's been a great deal of trauma. I mean, I've survived, you know, before 9-11, I, I survived 9/11. Prior to that, the, our embassy bombing in in Nairobi in 1998. I mean, I I, I have I have seen the ugliest side of you, what you, humanity. You, you were in can Nairobi when that happened. Yes. Wow. So and and so there's a great deal of survivors' guilt, if you will, that all of us who serve, whether it's military or civilian, when you see extraordinary people, innocent people that do not deserve to perish in any kind of way, and they do and and you never you never forget Do you, did your identity change being a survivor of that it certainly did in the sense of the the passion in terms of carpe diem, like every single day has to count. Every single thing you do has to count. So we're not promised tomorrow. You never know when it's your time to go. So you need to do everything that you can while you're here to create that beloved community, that world house. So in that sense, yes, but the honest truth is, according to those who knew me as a child, the essence of who I am today was already there 50 years ago.
2: That's, that's wonderful. What an amazing story. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, and I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm here with Javon, Javon Malay. Yeah. Okay, Javon, thank you for spending some time with me. First question I want to ask you is, how do you identify?
6: So I am a, a queer non-binary person, uh, an architect. And- so, you know, it's, it's always a little bit complicated. Uh, we're all complicated, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the way I tend to kind of identify and view myself is that I am some transgender, but not falling in with that, uh, say the traditional binary of man or woman. Um, so I do identify myself as part of the trans community, but within that, I, tend to view myself the way that I identify, the way I express myself, the way I dress is much more kind of a blend there. I don't strongly identify myself as being, oh, I'm a man or not definitively a woman either, right? So kind of in that blend there, uh, which is why I usually use the label for myself as being just generally queer.
2: Okay. Do, do you, in and- pronoun wise you, you know, pronoun that you yeah prefer? so
6: well so in that you know i i tend to accept um any and all pronouns really i i am just as happy if someone uses he or she or they for that matter um within that i you know given kind of what's been going around in the past couple of years i've been much more accepting of they um than really anything else but uh i've had you know for example my boss tends to introduce me to other people as he and i don't mind that
2: and and as a non-binary person so a lot of times we're listing our pronouns like on our signature or whatever yeah do you choose to list or do you choose to not list
6: um so i i do list them and i list them as uh he she they Um, Okay, so So that's fully inclusive. I list all three of them. the The full spectrum. Yeah.
2: Architecture has many different identities in it. Like you can, we know it's a legal designation. You're a licensed architect, right? Yeah. But it's an identifier in so many other ways. And there's a broad range of identifiers. So you live every day, even outside of architecture, in a world where you accept different pronouns, you have a broad range of identities as you said it's complicated. How has your identity impacted your career or not in architecture?
6: You know, I I actually I like to think that my identity hasn't negatively impacted my career in the way that queer identities have negatively impacted some other people's careers in other fields, right? Especially in things like like childcare or healthcare. Um is a big issue right now. But I will say that I think it has shaped in some ways the ways that i view my profession and what i do for a living so one of the big things going around right now is talking about um bathrooms and inclusive spaces you know for a long time we've we've gendered spaces especially when it comes to places where we feel vulnerable and you know one of the things that i have personally dealt with a lot in my life is like when I go to places, you know, I'm constantly looking, in my case, the most comfortable is to use, uh, like single user restroom facilities. And so when we talk to some of our clients, you know, we're planning, uh, hotels and we're planning, uh, you know, various other publicly accessible spaces. Uh, I look at that as a part of it. You know, we talk a lot about physical accessibility, right? ADA and ANSI guidelines and all of that. And I think that one of the things that I tend to bring to the table in a lot of our discussions around these is inclusivity of those things, but also inclusivity of gender identity and expression and, um, you know, more psychological, uh, psychologically inviting spaces. What we frequently come across as architects, right,
2: is that there are things expressed in code. There are things that are code minimums. And our job is to be insightful and to look beyond that, yeah, and the implications of what we do go on beyond just our time, typically on a lot of these projects. Have you found with clients resistance to that or dismissiveness maybe or
6: just just a lack of awareness? Yeah, I think a lot of it is more of a lack of awareness than like say a, a resistance or some sort of open hostility. I think a lot of it is, you know, a lot of the time I will step into using metaphors and analogies in order to kind of help educate and and get people to understand these positions. Because I think a lot of what we do, you know, and some of the stories at convention have been about storytelling. And I think a lot of what we do as architects is we help to educate clients and we help to provide them perspective on things that they may not have even thought about. And so when it comes to inclusive design, a lot of the time I like to try to use metaphors and analogies to help people. So for example, you know, I was speaking to actually to one of our mechanical engineers about uh, inclusivity in the way people dress and his, his being a mechanical engineer didn't really have any bearing on this. But when we're talking about like, say, inclusivity as far as the way people physically present themselves in a space that if you're talking about talking to people who see themselves very strongly on a binary of, you know, Oh, I am definitively a man. I've always felt this way or, or vice versa that sometimes they can get caught up in this idea of, Oh, well, I want you to present or look a certain way in a space, right. In a classroom, in an office. setting. It makes
2: them comfortable. Right.
6: Yeah. And, you know, I present it back to them and I say, well, if let's imagine for a second a world in which um say you had to wear some dress to work every day right that could potentially make you uncomfortable but not uncomfortable in the way of oh you know this is a little bit embarrassing for me it would make you uncomfortable on kind of that deeper level right, right. it's something right. where you would not feel appropriate displaying yourself that way and so in the same way you know people who Um, especially, you know, in the trans community, whether they're, uh, binary trans or non-binary trans, they oftentimes can feel that deep, deeper psychological discomfort with associating themselves in, in certain, you know, ways of dress. And that gets into deeper discussions about how we, how we code things to be masculine or feminine. But, you know, beyond that, it's just how do we, as an office, even beyond just designing other people's spaces, how do we make sure that the spaces that we inhabit are spaces that are inclusive and friendly when it comes to things like, say, dress codes or when it comes to things like bathroom usage, right?
2: Let's put very well in terms of we we want people, we're creating environments for human beings, right? We want them to thrive in the spaces that we create. And if we're not thinking about them right operating in these spaces... We've not fulfilled that obligation. We're just doing it for our own convenience, for cost, for any other number of reasons. For me, it's often, and I want to understand what you've encountered, it's often hard to, if people don't want to get that, right? If they don't want to get that, me being inclusive doesn't cost me anything. Like I can identify very strongly one way, part of who I am, it's part of who I want to be, but because someone else is different. I have no need to force them into my way of identifying, but I can also understand, celebrate them wanting to be just as fulfilled as I am in any space that we work on, create any of it.
6: Exactly. Yeah. I think that, you know, very much when we talk about, say, as architects, our our primary goal, you know, or our primary obligation is to the um, health, safety, and welfare of the public, right? And I think the welfare part is really the, you know, the, the guiding light of this conversation is, is inclusivity and diversity. Those are part of welfare because if people can feel comfortable, not just be able to do the activity that they're there for, right? At a, at a convention, you're there to go and learn at conferences. You're there to sit and watch a speaker and ask questions. But if they can do those things, but they don't necessarily feel comfortable staying in that space for longer than they're required to, then Have we really fulfilled the welfare part of our obligation? Those people at that point, no longer, I would argue that they don't benefit as much from being able to be in that space because they don't feel as comfortable just inhabiting it. They feel only as comfortable as they need to in order to be able to get through the 30-minute session or an hour session. And then they go find somewhere else that they do feel comfortable.
2: Well, thank you very much for spending some time with me to share your thoughts on this. And I, it's, it's very much appreciated. Thank you. All right. I am speaking with Malcolm Jones, AIA, um, who is a founder of BAM Orlando, Black Architects in the Making for the uninitiated. And is also a board member for the Orlando Foundation of Architecture. And Malcolm, I believe you recently started your own practice. Yes, sir, I did. So congratulations on all accounts. Here's the question I have for you. Um, How has your journey in architecture been shaped by your identity?
7: So that's a tough question. Well, when I think of identity, right, uh, there's a few different factors. Uh, For starters, just being a black man. Um, in America, right? That in and of itself is a whole identity right, uh, right. that not many can relate with uh, and say that that's a path they have to take. It's a, not an easy path to navigate. For me, it's very important that I understand the need and necessity to um, help others like me.
2: Are you saying that you're driven to, you feel called to that responsibility to help others because you're black man in america
7: yeah like so i know that i am more i've been more fortunate in many aspects uh just in general right than than a lot of people uh like my i have both parents in my life Uh, I grew up in a decent household, Mm -hmm. not saying I wish I was rich, uh, but I, we, I never went (laughs) working on it, right. Working on it. Uh, but I never went hungry. Right. Um, and you know, and that, that right there just shapes the type of person you are, right? Like, you know, the things that seem unattainable to a lot of individuals I had, I can get access. or I know there's a way to get access. Right. And so I have the, the wherewithal and the thought and the mindset to say, okay, if it's something I want to achieve, to, to gain, I can go and get it. And so I say all that to say the same thing I believe can be applied to architects, right? Where, you know, the built environment is purposely designed and shaped by people like our, us, architects, right? Um, some of us do it with the end user in mind, right? With the with the community that's going to be experiencing it. Uh, Hopefully with, all
2: of us do. All
7: right. Well, I'd say some because, you know, unfortunately you may have, you know, people, the money sometimes drives what, you know, dictates what the outcome is a lot of times, right? And so, uh, you know, you are, you could take examples like the projects, right? The projects, yeah, it's it's shelter, but is it properly designed to give the best quality of life to those that inhabit it?
2: The way I've looked at it is you being an African-American, we learn to navigate spaces and we become specialists at that. And for me, that's informed my journey as an architect because I've developed an expertise, if you will, in being to navigate spaces where I don't necessarily have to be the smartest one in the room. I don't have to be the most informed one in the room. But navigating those spaces, being used to that and being comfortable in an environment that maybe for a lot of people is uncomfortable helps me be a better architect.
7: Absolutely. But furthermore than that, also to your point of navigating different spaces, it allows me to also go into a space that is not necessarily in the realm of architecture, but to be able to go back and connect with my people, the people that others in society may shy away from at times, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, just you got such things as hoods, right? And typically in hoods, underserved areas, whatever you want to call it, predominantly black individuals, right? And you're not getting a 40-plus-year-old white person typically just going into these neighborhoods to, to connect with our people.
2: Not with street cred, right? Not
7: with right, but I feel comfortable enough going, to, obviously, to there's areas that you got to be cognizant of, but I'm comfortable enough to speak to individuals that just don't seem uh, the most inviting at all times, right? right? Or most people, maybe you don't feel too comfortable around, but that, that's, that's where I feel most of my comfort. So I being able to go connect with those people, with my people, uh, I can then ask them directly, what is it that they want to see in their neighborhoods, right? What type of, you know, I can't. I don't say what type of architecture you want to see because not a not allowed to connect with that word, that term. Right. But just what do you what do you want to experience? Right. What kind of things would you like to have access to? And me being able to have those conversations and then I can bring it back to the table, you know, bring it back to my uh, industry and say, hey, look, these approaches, some of these approaches may not be the most uh, succinct or the most beneficial, you know, for this. T- this community of individuals, right? Um, here's what I got as a firsthand account of what they're looking for. And now let's try to brainstorm and see how we can actually implement this in a good architectural des- design way. Um,
2: you are an informed advocate. You have the skill set to implement, you have the credibility to advocate. I yes, sir. Will, I think we'll leave it there, but thank you so much, Mark. Absolutely. Thank it. you. I am here with Tim Johnson, AIA who is the current president of AIA Orlando. So Tim, first of all, thank you for spending some time with us. Anytime, Dan, anytime. It's my pleasure to be uh, with you. So my question for you is how has your identity, and that's identity as you see it, how has your identity shaped your journey in architecture? I have mixed emotions about how my
8: identity has shaped my path and future in architecture. As you know, there are very few people who look like myself who call themselves architects as african american men that's yes. what we deal with that, right, right? right so
2: in high school
8: i discovered that i wanted to be an architect and i discovered i wanted to be an architect after being in industrial arts and having a drafting project and i enjoyed it i thought it was cool you know made some pretty cool things and then we would draw things and then we would go out and build those same things that we had just drawn. thought that was pretty cool. When I got to high school. I advanced a little bit more. I wanted to draw more and not build so much. And so I uh, purchased a drafting table online way back in 70s, online if you call it that. And had paper, and it took a drafting the catalog course. is what you yeah, say. Yeah, <laughs> the catalog,
2: the old school online. Yeah, the phone, phone, the phone book and then the catalog, and then the, <laughs> then the newspaper advertisement. Yeah, but okay. Man,
8: I brought purchased this drafting board, it was a portable drafting board. Um, it had a slide rule on it, and I took a drafting class in high school. And I would bring my own drafting board to to the class. Although we had all these big drafting tables right? with, with mm-hmm. T-squares and and, and um, angles and scales and all this good stuff. And so I would sit there and I would draw and draw and draw and draw. My dad tried to help me out by connecting me with an architect that he knew of by the name of Carl Thorne. We went to Mr. Thorne's office at least three times. He was never there. So <laughs> I never got a chance to meet the gentleman. But I just knew this was something I wanted to do. Why? Because it was, A, it was different. B. It was dealing with construction, and I had a likeness for construction, and so I, I just liked watching things being built. And candidly, uh, you know, I, I I'm like most kids. Uh, I tried to build my own treehouse, and sure, uh, not that, code compliant at that time. It was not code compliant. <laughs> and it was somewhat dangerous and non-compliant as well. But I I gave it a good try, and um, and I decided I said this is what I want to do for a living. Uh, to say that my identity, uh, form and shape that, I would have to say, I don't know that it did. I, I think, uh, what helped me to move into architecture was more the idea and notion
2: that I'm actually creating something. So getting into the profession, this was about creativity. It's about your curiosity. Right. Carl Thorne, who we both know, yes. is uh, supported. You know, generations encouraged generations of right. architects. Also, an African American man. Absolutely. So, yeah. I assume you got to meet. I absolutely. Carl Thorne later. <laughs> I absolutely did meet Carl, and and that's a funny story as well. Carl, I,
8: I got a job working for a building contractor, and he was building at the time. This summer, he was building like two churches, and I happened to be working on both of them. And which was kind of neat because we'd work on one and then we had to wait for inspections and we'd go to the other one. So we were back and forth between these two churches. They were about a mile apart. And one day at the job site, guy jo- shows up with a pair of cool shades on and a ponytail and he gets out of his car and he walks around and he's looking, he's talking to the contractor. And I was like, most of the other workers on the job, so, who's that guy? <laughs> and the contractor at the time knew that I was trying to meet Mr. Thorne. So he calls me over, he says, hey Tim, come here. I said, yeah, he calls me over. He says, meet Carl Thorne. I said, oh, you're the great Carl Thorne? And he says, I don't know about great young man, but who are you? <laughs> and I said, well, my dad and I have come. Oh yeah, I heard some people came by to see me. I'm sorry I wasn't there, but I was likely teaching at the at the college. And so I got a chance to meet him and um, we kind of connected at that point. And the, and the good thing about it, when I was at FAMU, he stayed in contact with me. That's, yeah. That's wonderful. So
2: it was really good. So you don't feel it was your identity that got you into this, but it sounds like your identity has definitely impacted your journey further into the profession. Yes. So at collegiate level, doing your work, mm-hmm. you were able to meet and connect with another African-American architect. Right. What about beyond that? I was at, you know, you think about school entering a profession. What did you see there? Positive uh, or negative? You absolutely do, and it positive. Can be-
8: for me, the profession is uh, about, A, it's, but two things come to mind, and they're very critical and very important to me. One, uh, architecture is about communication at, at its core. It's about communicating how to go about putting something together. But what is that something? And the most basic form to me is shelter. Okay, yes. Um. You know, I own real property, and uh, for me, you know, I'm always getting questioned by people, hey, do you have anything for rent? Do you have anything? For me, shelter is a basic ne- necessity for for humans. Right. And unfortunately, I don't think we have enough of it. And I think the quality of what we have sometimes can be improved uh, with all of the new automated things out there. You know, we could talk about AI, but I mean, building automation is
2: is important to me. It really is because it helps people to live more comfortable. So do people interact with their shelter in different ways? Yes, absolutely. All right. Case in point, look at
8: a shotgun house, okay? All right. And look at a house on Park Avenue in
2: Winter Park. Okay. So a, a tonier yeah. area with big you know, yeah. mansions in it.
8: Yeah. So a so shotgun house to me is a very simplified shelter, okay? Most people don't know what a shotgun house is. You shoot a bullet through the front of those goes out the back door, don't right, touch right. anything. So I think about it now. Both my grandparents had shotgun houses. Okay. And I thought those houses were palaces as a kid. I think about it and I look about it, look at it now, and I go, wow, how rudimentary, how basic, you know? And so you you look at that versus a house that someone has crafted, because it's obvious to me there was not a lot of thought put into shotgun house. It was just a basic house. You know, get a covering over the head and give them a couple of rooms and put a kitchen in there and right, a bathroom. Right. Sometimes didn't have a bathroom. Okay? Think about that. Let that marinate for a second. Uh, My dad passed through a couple of churches, didn't have bathrooms in them. They had an outhouse. The outhouse was built out of what? Concrete block. So you could have very well put a bathroom inside the building, but you didn't. You put it outside. Same thing with those houses. Some of those houses didn't have bathrooms inside. They had outhouses, you know. And so those are things that I think about now, and I think about how to improve the a the living condition and the uh, amenities that people have. And I'm gonna give you the, the bottom line here is the quality of your
2: shelter impacts your health. Okay, so, so we, we have a connection the- between shelter and health. Yes, and you know that's the how we shape the entire mm-hmm. environment. I want to dig a little deeper into some of the experiences you were just mentioning. Mm-hmm. So. Being in the shotgun house that you as a child thought it was a palace. Yes. Nothing wrong with that. You know, that's that's that perspective. Yep. And then going to these houses on Park Avenue mm-hmm. or being exposed to them at yes. some point, you know, in your early life, does that shape how you practice architecture? No. No. It does not. Okay.
8: It does not. Uh what shapes how I practice architecture is my experience with materials, okay? I mean, there's some materials that I would use to build a house out of because of the longevity of those materials. And I look at it from the standpoint of longevity as opposed to function. Okay. Function is good. We got the function part out of the way, but I look at it from the standpoint of longevity. What What's going to be here, you know, and the quality of it. For me, I look at those, those houses that potentially are on Park Avenue, and I look at the shotgun house. Shotgun house is going to take a lot of maintenance and upkeep and care. You don't have a lot of that when you have a house that's been well built a, and built out of materials that are going to be long-standing materials. And so those are some, some of the things that help shape the way I think about so, architecture. So
2: is there something in how how did you develop this appreciation for longevity, for sturdiness, for resilience in structures? Having been... In so
8: many houses that didn't have it. All right. That did not, absolutely did not have it. I've been in in houses, Dan, that uh, didn't have any basic uh, necessities. No bathroom, no running water, no lights even, okay? I've been in houses like that. I've seen people live in those conditions. And for me, whatever we can do to improve that type of
2: condition at an economical cost, I think Mm -hmm. is important. So just want to understand from you also, you've held leadership positions in NOMA and in AIA, and NOMA is a national organization of minority architects, AIA being the American Institute of Architects, right? Mm -hmm. You've moved into leadership positions in both organizations. Has identity shaped your leadership in those groups in any way? I think it has. Uh, In NOMA,
8: of course, uh, I'm always looking to be the mentor or the person that helps to bring people a together and b help everyone to have some place to work. Okay. Uh, I, I do. I go out of my way to try to help make sure everybody's got somewhere to work. In AIA, I'm simply trying to apply my leadership to the things and the current issues at hand. Right now, one of the current issues that we're dealing with in AIA Orlando is a small task force we put together to. Uh, talk about and advocate for our profession, and I think it's important we do that. So advocacy is a huge for me, on either side. I'm advocating for those who are uh, may not may feel like they're less fortunate, and then I'm advocating for those who have the ability
2: but they're they're not getting the the,
8: the handshake that they really need. This is a
2: reoccurring theme as I have conversations, particularly with the architects. Right, this idea of Architecture and advocacy going hand Mm -hmm. in hand. One final thought I want to ask you, one final question. If you just met somebody and you were trying to describe Tim Johnson to them, what would you say? I would say Tim Johnson's
8: a guy who's going to always seek the best for everyone, Uh, good, bad, or indifferent. Sometimes people may not see it as good. Whatever I think is good for you, I'm going to try to help you get there. And I may not be able to always articulate it or explain it, but I do what I can to help people get the best because we only have
2: one life to live. All right. Helper, mentor, advocate, leader. Tim, thank you so much for your time. I much thank appreciate you, Dan. It. I appreciate you doing this interview. I've heard all these stories from people about how they identify. Why is this issue of identity important in our daily work? You want
3: to be able to really understand and have a farther reach with your with your desired client base.
2: So it comes from underst- understanding both the team and the people that we're doing work for. Exactly. So going from that, Understanding of people. We've now want to have these teams and organizations that are built understanding diverse teams of people are more competitive. That's what helps to make us part of vibrant organizations, right? And competitive organizations and more profitable organizations, I should say.
3: Leads to innovation as
2: well. And to innovation, right? So these are better, higher performing teams. I came across a study um, by Dylan and Burke that talks about six characteristics of inclusive leaders and wanted to share those. And this is a study from 2016, All right, So they said there's six characteristics. One is uh, curiosity, curiosity to learn new subjects uh, and to listen to different ideas to experience growth. The next was cultural intelligence, and it's having the cultural intelligence to identify that people come from different backgrounds and cultures, that they have different life, life experiences. And because of those life experiences, they can perceive things differently. Collaboration. It's one we talk about a lot in the business world, but collaboration. And that guarantees that team members will work together to achieve their objectives and goals, and that they understand that the final result will be positive of, of these diverse teams coming together. The next C there is commitment, and it's a commitment to see the process through to the end and to maintain their stand even when things get difficult or when engagement might decrease. Courage was the next one. Courage to admit that they have biases and to assume that they are not perfect. And then cognizance, and it's cognizance to admit that biases in itself are a point of weakness. So those are the six takeaways for inclusive leaders and how they might look at things. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Building Inclusive. We hope that you've connected with something that was shared here. If you did, please like, share, and comment. Additional information is available at aiaorlando.com. And please make sure that your plans always include building inclusive building
0: inclusive is a collaborative project of aia orlando and the get real consortium including crew orlando the florida chapter of the american planning association naop central florida and urban land institute central florida opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and not necessarily those of the sponsors or presenting organizations
2: This episode has been made possible through the support of the Orlando Office of Colliers. With operations in 66 countries, professionals at Colliers work collaboratively to provide expert real estate and investment advice to clients, maximizing the potential of property and real assets. www.colliers.com.